Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Airwave, a student-led anesthesia podcast for pre-clerk and junior clerk medical students. My name is Alexa, and joining me today is my ex-large coffee and, most importantly, my wonderful co-host, Grace. <laughs> Alexa, you're always too kind, but I do have a very important question to ask before we get started. If you had to pick between me and the coffee, which one would have to go? I mean, I'd say both are equally important to the success of this episode, but I did say most importantly, my wonderful co-host, Grace. So there you have my answer. Well, I guess I'll have to take your word for it, but hello, everyone, and I'm so excited to be here to discuss the next step uh, in general anesthesia, which is emergence. And with this episode, it also means we're getting one step closer to have completed the first series on general anesthesia. Woo! Woo! Short little cheer. I should add that today's episode was written by the one, the only, Alexa, who's here with us today, and reviewed by Dr. Nick Timmerman. Now, before we get started, I'd like to remind our listeners that the views expressed on this podcast are our own and don't necessarily reflect those of our institution. I'd also like to emphasize that this podcast is not intended to be used for medical advice, just good old-fashioned medical education. So put your tray tables up and put your seat in the upright position and prepare yourselves for landing because we're going to cover emergence today. And we'll also dive into some of the complications you might encounter during this critical period. And as always, point out what you as a medical student can do during this time, which is probably why you're all here, right? And there's a reason that anesthesia is often compared to aviation. Much like a typical plane ride where takeoff and landing are the most important components, induction and emergence are arguably the most critical times during the delivery of general anesthesia. And there's no doubt that emergence is one of the more happening times during the delivery of a general anesthetic. So I think a good place to start would be getting a more general picture of what exactly emergence entails. What emergence is, is that it's the gradual return to consciousness after discontinuing an anesthetic at the end of the surgical procedure. And more specifically, it's defined as a time from when you stopped giving an anesthetic to the time at which a patient can make a non-reflex verbal command. So how do we get there? Anesthesia emergence has been historically considered to be a passive process based on pharmacokinetics. So the redistribution or elimination of an anesthetic drug from its central effect site. And Alexa is our in-house pharmacology expert, so she always puts it quite beautifully. But uh, to kind of put it in simple terms, we're just going to stop giving the patient where you were giving them before. So if you remember, we maintained a patient's unconscious um, state um, throughout our general anesthesia case with a volatile gas. So what we would do, we'd turn that off. But for example, if you use a propofol infusion for maintenance, you'd have to allow some time for its redistribution to ensure a smooth wake up. And this is where um, pharmacological concepts like half-life really come into, come into shine. And that's definitely part of it. Other maneuvers that you'll also see on emergence include using high-fresh gas flow rates with high-inspired oxygen concentration to wash out any inhaled agents that might be on board. And you'll also see your staff make use of positive and expiratory pressure ventilation 
or PEEP, to prevent atelectasis, which is the partial or complete collapse of a lobe of the lung. But keep in mind that because emergence is dependent on the body's ability to clear anesthetic agents, that individuals who might have impairment of that, such as older patients, obese patients, patients with hepatic or renal disease, that they might actually have impaired clearance and therefore have a prolonged emergence. Now, you have to think about a little bit more than the patient itself. You also need to think about the individual properties of the drugs that you gave in addition to the properties of the volatile agents that you that are on board. So again, thinking about the pharmacokinetics of a drug, it'll have a shorter or longer effects. Likewise, with your volatile anesthetics, the less soluble they are in blood, the faster their onset and offset. So for example, in the previous episode, we talked about desflurane and the fact that it had a high MAC or minimum alveolar concentration. And that's because it really isn't all that soluble in blood and will diffuse rapidly into the tissues. So what that means is that its clinical onset and offset is relatively rapid. For example, if you were to consider it with sevoflurane, which has a lower MAC. Now, the last thing to add to your list of considerations beyond, again, the patient, the drugs itself, is that you need to remember, hmm, well, what are the other things that I gave to the patient? Because there's often synergy between medication and there's also induction or inhibition of cytochrome pathways. In your pharmacology lectures, you might remember the effect of grapefruit juice on cytochrome P450. In the OR, that's less one that you have to consider. But definitely you need to realize that drugs aren't acting independently. And depending on what you gave and the amount of what you gave for each respective drug, there might be altered metabolism and elimination times. So we hate to break it to you, but there is value in not sleeping through those pharmacology lectures. I feel a bit personally targeted by that comment. And I definitely empathize that it is a lot um, to take in. Now, the other part of emergence is that it actually isn't just the mirror image of induction. It's not simply reversing the drugs that you gave or letting them wear off. It's also a time where you have to think about reversing the non-depolarizing paralytic if you gave one to a patient. You need to think about what medications a patient has on board for post-operative pain, what antiemetics they've been given so far, and correlate that with their risk factors for having post-operative nausea and vomiting. And lastly, what is your plan for how you're going to extubate this patient? So if we look back at our 38-year-old patient who you've met many times before, who's undergoing a laparoscopic tubal or a laparoscopic hysterectomy, she's really an ideal candidate to work through some of those issues. Right. And if you go back to our many episodes, you'll remember that because this was a laparoscopic case, the patient was given rocaronium at the beginning and likely received an additional bolus dose during the case. 
And you may also remember that rocuronium is one of the non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. This allows for relaxation of the abdominal wall muscles and ensures optimal surgical conditions. It's really, really important to reverse the neuromuscular blockade since the diaphragm and upper airway muscle groups may still be impaired with an even partial blockade. And if you even remember some basic anatomy and physiology, you need some of those to even breathe, like the diaphragm. So really important. And since we want the patient to have adequate ventilation and upper airway reflexes with emergence, it's, again, really important to ensure that complete blockade reversal. But the question next is, how do we reverse the blockade? So to do this, you'll see your staff administer an acetylcholine esterase inhibitor, which is often neostigmine. This works by increasing the amount of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction, competing with the effect of the non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocker. And if you remember anything, a good way to think of it is that acetylcholine is like the go signal at the neuromuscular junction that allows for muscles to contract. One thing to think about, however, is acetylcholine is the neurotransmitter that is also present in the parasympathetic chain of the neuromuscular, I'm sorry, of the autonomic nervous system. And neostigmine does not discriminate. So by giving neostigmine, you're also increasing acetylcholine in your parasympathetic chain and therefore increasing parasympathetic tone. And And this can mean some really bad things, unfortunately. So does anyone remember a really important organ that responds to the vagal innervation of the parasympathetic system? Spoiler, the heart. The heart, the heart, so important. Such a great organ. (laughs) Everyone's favorite. So a general kind of tip at the heart and with parasympathetic tone is that it likes to slow everything down. So in this case, with this increased parasympathetic tone, you'll get things like bradycardia and decreased contractility as a result of too much acetylcholine in the synaptic cleft. And kind of happening synergistically at the same time with this increased vagal tone in the airways is increased bronchoconstriction and increased airway secretions, which taken all together seems like a pretty good recipe for disaster. So this is why we also have to give glycopyrrolate. So glycopyrrolate is a muscarinic receptor antagonist, which acts similar to atropine, if you've ever heard of that before, and it inhibits the parasympathetic effects of neostigmine while not interfering with its effects at the neuromuscular junction. So put simply, you can reverse the paralysis without getting all those um, negative parasympathetic effects. Fun fact about glycopyrrolate, doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, so you won't have any CNS uh, symptoms of uh, muscarinic blockade. So that's just a cool fact about that drug that I really wanted to share. Uh, but in thinking about the parasympath- parasympathetic chain, the role of acetylcholine, muscarinic antagonist, it's a lot to put together and we recognize that. So if you need to take a few seconds, feel free to pause or rewind that explanation. Yep. And we're also going to be doing a whole episode on these concepts as well, because I personally love neuromuscular blockers and physiology. So stay tuned for that. But now that we've given this reversal agent and some other drugs you may want to consider um, during emergence includes antiemetics and medications for postoperative pain. 
And while antiemetics may be given for prophylaxis prior to the case or at the beginning of the case, some studies have found that um, giving an antiemetic such as ondansetron um, during perhaps the end of the case during emergence uh, might be more effective. Our patient that we met several times has many risk factors for postoperative nausea and vomiting. If you remember, she is female, underwent a laparoscopic procedure, and will likely receive opioids postoperatively. Therefore, um, postoperative nausea vomiting prophylaxis is definitely something we want to consider, both at the beginning of the case and during emergence. And if the patient wakes up for surgery and they don't feel nauseated, you might just be their favorite new anesthesiologist. And as a side note, one of the things that I find the most rewarding about anesthesia is that you can comfortably take a patient through their surgery, and controlling their nausea is a massive part of that. I was on elective once, and a patient told me that she had just absolutely awful post-operative nausea and vomiting during her previous surgery, to the extent that it was actually worse than the surgery itself. And this time around, she was more worried about that than, again, having surgery. And in reviewing her pre-operative orders, I noticed that she didn't have anything ordered for post-operative nausea and vomiting. And I just so happened to be at a center that had a prepotent, which is a pretty powerful antiemetic that's given prior to the surgery. So what I did is I ran over to my staff and asked if we could get a prescription of some prepotent for her before the surgery. The case ended up going smoothly, and a few hours later, while we were bringing another patient to the PACU, she pulled me aside and said that her experience this time around was night and day, and that she wasn't nauseated at all. My point here is that anesthesiologists play a big role in the patient's surgical experience, and there's a lot of things that they do to make it that's overall positive. The other thing is that making sure that your patient has appropriate antiemetics or asking your staff if they don't have any are little things that you can do as a medical student that make a world of difference. And on a similar note, another kind of thing that's very important is pain management. So often during a case, um, there'll be relatively short-acting or intermediate-acting narcotics given, such as remifentanil or fentanyl. But you should also consider um, administering some longer-acting narcotics um, for post-operative analgesia during the emergence period. One um, such example is an opioid called hydromorphone, which has a duration of action about three to four hours and is often prescribed for post-operative pain. You could also consider Ketorolac, which is an NSAID, if the patient doesn't have any bleeding risks or kidney disease. And asking your staff if you can help out with the post-op orders is a great way to get involved as a medical student. So where were we? We have post-operative nausea and vomiting covered. We have pain control covered. And if we go back to our patient, you gave the reversal agent, you turned off your volatile gas, you turned up your fresh gas flow rates, and put the ventilator on pressure support. Fast forward a few minutes, you look to your monitor and see that the patient is breathing spontaneously at 10 breaths per minute. Good job. Their oxygen saturation is 97%, another win. They're pulling tidal volumes of 450 milliliters, and their end tidal CO2 is 41. The patient looks good, but the million-dollar question is, can you pull the tube out? 
And that's always one of the hardest questions in anesthesia is when to pull the tube out. And often people will give you different answers. But in talking about extubation, the first thing you want to ask yourself is, is the patient ready to be extubated? And while intubation often steals the spotlight in airway management, extubation is just as important and can come with a variety of complications if done inappropriately. To give you some perspective, a British Journal of Anesthesia article found that respiratory complications were actually three times more likely to occur during extubation than intubation. So to make sure that a patient is ready to be extubated, there are a few criteria you want to look at. And we'll put these in the show notes if you want a refresher a little bit later on. But generally speaking, we, we're going to mention five things that you'll want to make sure. So number one, you'll want to make sure the patient is hemodynamically stable. Number two, you'll want to make sure they have a respirate of greater than eight and less than 35. Number three, you'll want to make sure the partial pressure of oxygen is about 60 with an FiO2 of less than 50%. Although adequate ventilation can be confirmed by a partial pressure of carbon dioxide at about less than 50. Four, you'll want to make sure tidal volume is greater than five milliliters per kilogram. And five other parameters that could be measured by spirometry that aren't part of the extubation criteria, but that you won't get in the operating room is a negative inspiratory force of at least 25 um, and a vital capacity of 15 milliliters per kilogram. And I know I just gave you a bunch of numbers that probably went in one ear and out the other, and that was a pretty detailed summary of what you want to make sure. So you can definitely check out our show notes as well. But they're good kind of markers to make sure the patient is awake enough to protect their airways. And you may also see your staff assessing additional indicators and assessing powerful movements, such as if the patient can open their eyes or mouth or squeezing your hand when you ask them to do so. Now, a caveat to this that you may encounter on your rotations is that some staff may be proponents of deep extubation in specific cases. This is where you extubate the patients, and you'll often see this in pediatric, case, uh, in pediatric patients, while they're still deeply anesthetized and the laryngeal reflexes are depressed to avoid laryngospasm. This technique also reduces cardiovascular stimulation and straining on the tube. That being said, just knowing the extubation criteria we talked about is a great way to start as a medical student, and anything beyond that, like deep extubation, is an advanced technique or is an advanced principle, so no need to worry about that now. And just a few more things we'll want to cover in extubation is that you'll want to make sure you deflate the cuff of the endotracheal tube with the syringe and gently remove um, the endotracheal tube. So you'll remember during induction, we actually inflated the tube. So quite simply, to, in order to pull it out, you want to make sure this is deflated. And prior to this, you want to make sure that all the equipment requiring for reintubation is readily available if necessary. Also super important. Another helpful thing that you can do as a medical student is being ready at the head of the bed with the suction system to aspirate any secretions that the patient may have. This is really important in patients who have reactive airways. An example would be in smokers. It's often, it's often a good idea to suction the posterior pharynx to clear any secretions above the ETT prior to expiration as these pesky secretions can later trigger a laryngospasm, which we definitely don't want. 
You should also make sure that the equipment for oxygenation post-extubation is available, such as oral airways, nasal cannulas, oxygen masks, as well as a portable oxygen cylinder. Awesome. That was a lot, but thank you, Grace, for walking us through that. Now that the patient is extubated and awake, what you want to do next is demonitor the patient. And what I will say is staff definitely have um, their preferences in terms of when they would like the monitors to be taken off, in addition to the order in which they want their monitors to come off. So my piece of advice from a medical student to another medical student would be to ask your staff before you demonitor them. Another point that I'd like to add is that generally the oxygen saturation probe is the last monitor to come off. One of my staff explained it to me like this, and honestly, it makes sense. If you're maintaining a good oxygen saturation, that generally means your lungs are working well. It also means that you have an adequate blood pressure that's perfusing your periphery, which means, generally speaking, that your heart should also still be pumping well. And in that way, it's a quick and easy way to make sure that the patient is hemodynamically stable and ready to be transferred over to the PACU. Now, I recently was listening to an EM Crit podcast episode where they went through times in which oxygen saturation was not always reliable in terms of hemodynamic stability. So I will say not 100% of the time, but generally speaking, if the patient has a good oxygen saturation, you can be rest assured that it's likely that the patient's hemodynamics are stable. And just before we end off for today, I hate to end on this scary note, but as much as staff like to make extubation look easy, it unfortunately is not always that smooth. And in preparing for it, you should also keep in the back of your mind some of the complications that can arise so you can be ready to handle them. So we thought we'd mention um, the five that we um, thought were the most important. So number one is airway obstruction. So examples of this, as we mentioned before, were laryngospasm, you also have laryngeal edema, hemorrhage, trauma, and vocal cord paralysis. Two is early postoperative hypoxemia due to inadequate minute ventilation, increased ventilation perfusion mismatch, inhibition of hypoxic vasoconstriction, and decreased cardiac output. Three is a heightened cardiovascular response. So if you think about it, taking a tube out is probably not the most pleasant of situations and is associated with 10 to 30% increase in arterial pressure and heart rate. So this may not be a big deal for your nice 20-year-old who's nice and healthy, but in patients with coronary artery disease, this can lead to a 40 to 50% drop in ejection fraction. So four is aspiration. So often the swallowing reflex is obtended by anesthetic agents and even uh, paralytics, uh, as we talked about before. And five, emergence delirium. So some risk factors include the extremes of age, such as really young or really old patients, the length of surgery, and the presence of a Foley catheter. Now, like all things in anesthesia, remember 99% smooth sailing, 1% sheer terror. And like the practice of anesthesia itself, it's always a good idea to think about these things and be prepared for them when they do happen, rather to not think of them be at all and be caught off guard.
Thanks for tuning in to today's episode, and we hope you found it useful. It's a lot to take in, but hopefully this can provide some guidance for the next time you'll be in the OR. Also, make sure to check out the next episode of our mini-series where we'll cover the last step of a general anesthesia, which is delivery to PACU and handover. Also, make sure to check out our website for the show notes, tweet at us on Twitter at at Airwave Podcast, and follow us on Instagram for any questions or suggestions. And if you like what we do, feel free to give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, keep working hard. Stay healthy and safe. Take some nice deep breaths and count back from 10.